on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I told them what I was doing and every single one of them said, Jeff, why are you throwing your career away over this? Today I sit down with Jeff Childers, a business attorney who launched himself into constitutional law in 2020. He soon got the first ruling in the country that mandatory masking was presumptively unconstitutional. When have you ever seen government do anything fast? But it happened this time. And when have you ever seen all the government actors agree with each other? But it happened this time. In the last two years, he successfully fought vaccine mandates, defended high-profile individuals in the January 6th committee investigations, and fought against hospitals that forced patients to stay on ventilators and remdesivir. Every major institution in this country has closed ranks to protect those wrongdoers. There will be accountability. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Jeff Childers, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've been deeply involved in litigation around many issues surrounding COVID. That's true. Uh, Unexpectedly, I would say. So, I mean, very briefly, tell me how you got involved in this. So uh, my background is I'm a commercial litigation attorney, which means I usually represent businesses and fight about money. And I've been doing that for a long time and was very successful at it and had a nice boutique practice where I didn't have to work that hard and still did very well. And then uh, the pandemic came. And um, I had one of those moments, you know, that you have in life where you never forget it. And for me, it was sitting on my back patio watching my first county commission meeting that I'd ever seen in my life. My wife was sitting next to me. I can visualize it like I'm sitting there right now. And I saw those commissioners discuss a, an out-of-control pandemic in about 10 minutes and then pass the first mandatory mask mandate in the state of Florida that was countywide. And something just um, grabbed me in a, you know almost spiritual way. I was so offended. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, there's no way that's constitutional. They can't tell us what to wear. They can't tell us we have to strap something to our head and wear it around. I mean, that's insane. Now, I had never practiced any constitutional or civil rights law in my entire career. I didn't even know where to start, but I fired off a demand letter to the county commission, hit the books, and within a week or two, I filed my very first complaint against any government entity. You know, I didn't even know where to serve it. I mean, who do you give it to? The mayor? Uh, You know, you put it in that little slot at the library where you return the books, you know. 
I had to figure all that stuff out. And as I do with any case that has novel issues, um, I called my peers, right, for advice. And I told them what I was doing, and every single one of them said, Jeff, why are you throwing your career away over this? And it was a real gut check. I mean, these are people that I have profound respect for, you know, who have decades more legal experience than I do. Um, but I decided to push through and, and to tackle it. Um, and the result of that one, which is sort of what put me into the middle of the, the hurricane, was we won. Um, we won on appeal. We got the only appellate decision, as far as I know, in the entire country, finding that mandatory masking was presumptively unconstitutional. And so um, when people heard that I was willing to to take these cases. And you remember back in, we're talking about the summer of 2020, the peak of mask hysteria, right? Where, you know, even, even asking the question about the masks would get you the response, you're literally killing grandma, right? You remember that. And so uh, there were very few attorneys who, you know, had any, you know, real serious litigation track record that were willing to take these cases. So we started to get you know, all kinds of things. And, um, you know, very quickly we challenged the vaccines. And uh, on my first vaccine case, we won, a, as far as I know, the first broad preliminary injunction against a government vaccine mandate in the entire country. Um, we got death threats over that one. Um, we removed a school board member who was about to pass a sweeping CRT-related uh, uh, transformation of the the school district. Um, we challenged uh, one of the largest hospital chains in the country over its private vaccine mandate. And while we didn't get a preliminary injunction on that one, they immediately backed down after we got the the verbal order from the judge because it was so strong in recognizing the irrationality of the the mandate. So. Uh, this is all brand new territory for me, right? Completely unlike anything I've ever done. And I'm not used to being in the limelight. Um, you know, I go, now I'm being invited to, to talk, um, you know, recently at the Moms for Liberty um, National Conference, right? My session with Joe Harding was right after Governor DeSantis spoke. And I mentioned uh, AR-15s in an analogy and you know, all across the country, newspapers were running stories about, you know, attorney Jeff Childers talks about AR-15s. And um, uh, Tiffany Justice is the national co-chair for Moms for Liberty. She was on Dr. Phil the other day, and he asked her about what I said. I'm not used to that kind of stuff, right? I'm just a quiet, boutique, small-town attorney fighting uh, over business contracts. I'm as surprised as anyone to be sitting right here talking to you. Something you said uh, really made me think. Um, everyone you reached out to, your peers, your learned peers, um, said, why are you throwing your career away? Why was that so obvious to them, do you think, that this is what was happening? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, they all, or almost all, followed that comment up with some remark like, this will all be over in a few weeks or a few months. Um, so I think there was a, a sort of a dual recognition in the profession that this was politically dangerous. And 
that um, you could be even potentially disbarred. I think that's the implication, right? Throwing your career away means you're gonna lose your bar license over this. Their conventional wisdom was just wait it out. But I didn't believe it was going to be over soon. I mean, it didn't even occur to me. To me, this mask thing seemed like just the beginning. And if they could get away with encroaching on our constitutional rights to that extent, you know, dictating what we wear, then they were gonna go to the next level. That seemed obvious to me. And it was not something that was obvious to my peers. Um, my peers seemed to think it was, you know, sort of politics as normal. Um, if I could jump to a related um, story that I think is analogous to this, I also became involved with defending some high-profile folks in the January 6th committee investigations. And once again, because I've never represented anyone in a, you know, who was the target of a congressional investigation before, I mean, that seems very serious. And so we're getting subpoenas and demands for depositions and things like that. And, you know, and again, one of my superpowers is I'm a fast learner. So I have a lot of self-confidence that I can learn quickly, but you don't want to make a mistake. So I called um, my uh, connections in D.C. and got references to, you know, tall building attorneys who make $1,500 an hour and up, who, rep who normally represent folks in that situation. And all of them said... Um, Jeff, this is just business as normal in D.C. The uh, commission is just going to write a report and then this whole thing is going to blow over. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I believe that. I, I feel like they're, they're collecting evidence for uh, DOJ investigations. I feel like there are going to be criminal indictments coming based on all this information that the committee's scooping up that the DOJ couldn't get. Right? They don't have the same powers that Congress does. And all these attorneys in D.C., these you know, very highly paid guys who swim in that world, all told me, no, they'll never do that. It would be politically toxic for them to translate this into um, criminal indictments and criminal prosecutions. And so I stopped talking to them. And it, it's the same kind of groupthink, right, that I saw at the beginning with the masks. I don't know what it is. I can't explain it because attorneys are very smart people. I mean, you have to, to go through law school, to pass the bar, to think on your feet in front of judges, you know, to, to uh, handle things that come up in a, in a second. Um, you have to be very intelligent and, and, and critical. You have to be a critical thinker. But there was no critical thinking being applied to, to these issues. And so I guess... At bottom, I'm still, uh, you know, sort of baffled by the sort of ubiquitous thought process by most, uh, you know, conventional, what I call tall building attorneys or large firm attorneys, right? And if you pressed me, I would probably uh, suggest to you that you know, these large law firms now are so intertwined with government, right? They get large cases from different government agencies, for example. And so they have to be careful that they don't offend their government clients. Um, 
that it makes them very conservative when it comes to anything that challenges the conventional, you know, published government narrative. And so I, I think that's my best explanation for why we didn't see, right, all the traditional civil rights firms jump into this. Like, you know, the ACLU and all of these other civil rights firms that um, will pick up, you know, if, if a teacher somewhere can't put up a pride flag, then you've got 10 attorneys there the next day, right? But if the teacher doesn't want to wear a mask, there's nobody showing up to represent them. And I think the difference is that one has the imprimatur of government and the other one has whatever the reverse opposite of that is, right? Here there be serpents. And so there's a problem. There's a fundamental problem with the system right now. The, the big law firms, and, and by big, I mean, it went all the way down to you know, law firms with like 50 attorneys, which you would probably call smaller or medium-sized, but they're so dependent on government now that they are unwilling to challenge these um, sort of official government narratives, at least not without um, a lot of thought and very cautiously. And that's a problem, I think, for normal citizens, right? We've got to break that, that interdependence between government and our legal community, because it's not good, whatever is behind this. Are you sitting in that community meeting where you know, you realized, you know, you thought to yourself, they can't do this. Um, you, you described it as a, almost a spiritual experience. Why, why do you describe it that way? I was an agnostic for most of my life and uh, raised Catholic. Uh, I've always believed in God. Um, you know, just the idea that, the, that all of this uh, occurred by accident was ridiculous to me. It just never, never gripped me at all. Um, and in my early 40s, I had a sort of bona fide spiritual experience with a vision and, and everything else. And, and uh, that was when I really started reading the Bible and going to church every single weekend and tithing. And, you know, it was a complete transformation. It happened to me on a bike ride. And, you know, if you ask my wife, she'll say I came back from that bike ride a different, better person. Um, and I started to be more in tune with sort of suggestions that I felt like were coming from a divine source that weren't anything that I would have thought of on my own. I mean, the idea, for example, that I would sue the government over something, it would have never occurred to me, right? That idea was is so alien. I mean, you know, any UFO alien was more alien or less alien, I guess, than, than that idea. So I pay attention to those, um, those feelings. And uh, I, I feel like if, if you don't follow those suggestions, then you know, the divinity is going to turn up the, the temperature on you. And that becomes uncomfortable. So it's better to just go with it at the beginning. So I sort of went into the, to this having this spiritual conviction that what was happening was just wrong, was morally and ethically wrong. Um, Sometimes I think we put you know, too much emphasis on the Constitution. I don't want people to misinterpret that. What I mean is it, it's a fantastic document, right? It has created the, the largest, most powerful, most 
successful company in the, our country in the history of the world. Um, but it is a piece of paper created by men. There is a higher power. The founding documents refer to the higher power, right? All of our rights come from the creator. They don't come from government. So those constitutional rights are supposed to be a reflection of our, our God-given freedoms. Why me? Why, you know, a commercial litigation attorney in Gainesville, Florida, who's never even dabbled in this area of law? Aren't there better lawyers to tackle these problems than me? Now remember, we're right at the beginning. I'm talking about March 2020, right? Why weren't the 10 lawyers showing up instantly in Alachua County from the ACLU to fight this? It wasn't happening. And that was strange. That was very, very weird to me. So uh, to answer your question, I feel like that, that there was a spiritual element, that there were forces at play, forces of, of even good and evil, if you want to put it in those terms. And I didn't feel like I had a choice. Um, you know, if I wound up losing my uh, career over it, then I felt like that was something I needed to do. I needed to be able to say I tried. What did your wife think about that? Because she was sitting beside you, right? Yeah, She was. And, um, you know, I have been so blessed. Uh, you know, I don't have a perfect marriage. I don't want to make it sound like that. But on the big things, you know, Michelle goes right along with me. She, you know, took up the cause and uh, worked heroically at home. Um, you know, she was one of the, the original moms who was involved in the Moms for Liberty movement, for example, and, um, you know, made countless phone calls and, you know, Zoom meetings and things trying to, to uh, organize citizens who had never been politically active in their entire lives. I mean, that's what's so remarkable, I think, about where we are is that what we've seen is a revolution among the apolitical. Right? Among people who uh, felt like if they, as long as they minded their own business and you know, did their job and took care of their kids and you know, um, participated in their community, everything would be fine. And I don't think they feel that way anymore. There's a lot of them. Uh, and so my wife was one of those. And, and it, was, uh, it would have been so much different if I didn't have her support. You know, I don't know if I'd be sitting here. So you've obviously talked to a lot of people uh, on this boat that you just described. And uh, what are the things that made people suddenly become active? There's probably more than one answer to that question. Certainly there are, I think. Yeah. Um, I think at, at a sort of fundamental level, a lot of people were shocked that the world didn't work the way that they thought it worked. Right? I think that what happened was when you saw this, you know, probably worldwide, certainly nationwide response for governments turning on a dime, right? When have you ever seen government do anything fast? But it happened this time. And when have you ever seen all the government actors agree with each other? But it happened this time. You, me, our peers, people younger than we are, people older than we are, have never seen anything like that in their entire lives. And these emergency powers. 
that previously had only been used in short periods of time after a hurricane, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I can't even remember a, me a medical emergency that caused, uh, you know, the state of Florida to declare an emergency. I, I can't remember that. So that was new. Nobody had ever seen that before. People always thought that our government officials would exercise some degree of moral and ethical restraint, that they would, would balance competing interests, right? When they shut down all these small businesses, these small business owners, who are, a lot of them are my clients, they don't spend their time in politics. They're working, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day making their small business work. They never had to pay any attention to it. If they had to go and vote, you know, every four years, they would do that. But apart from that, they kept their, you know, nose to the grindstone. Well, the government, you know, from one day to the next just took their small business away. That was offensive at a level that they had never been offended on before. And so... People refer to that as awakening. I don't know if that's a, you know, a, good, um, a good descriptor or not, but they were certainly shocked. Right? It was like electric shock therapy. And so when somebody goes through something like that, it, it's, um, it's a very profound experience, maybe even a spiritual experience, right? to have your worldview challenged um, so fundamentally. And then, to a lot of people, it seemed like the government came after the children. Hmm. And, and that sort of flip switches that are buried in your you know, reptilian brain, these, these protective instincts that we have toward our kids. Um, I used to uh, um, talk to pastors. So for a while I, I was trying to find, uh, when the churches were shut down, that was another one. I thought that was an incredible constitutional invasion. And sure enough, the Supreme Court has uh, ratified that belief. But way back at the beginning, I was trying to find a, any church that would let me sue the government for them, for First Amendment, and I couldn't find any. Um, and so I was out talking to, to groups of pastors, you know, listen, you guys, ha you have rights. This is wrong, what's happening. You need to, to wake up, right? And yet there was a, among the the, the pastor's group, not all of them, but most of them, there was a, a great fear or reluctance to directly challenge the government. The government that issues permits when you want to build a new wing on your church, right? The, the government who gives you the uh, tax exemption because you're a nonprofit. Whereas the folks that sat in the pews whose kids were not allowed to go to school were outraged. Um, and it was very, very challenging, um, you know, trying to navigate those two communities. When the parents saw what their kids were being taught on these, you know, Zoom classes and things, it horrified them even more. You know, again, they had this worldview. Their worldview was shaped by how school was when we went to school right? Reading, writing, arithmetic, class projects, field trips, you know, Americana, 
that kind of thing. What they saw was something completely different. And again, it just shredded their concept of ordered liberty. Um, and when I talked to the pastors, and this is around the summertime of 2020, I said, you know, you guys have seen these YouTube videos, right? They're really great where the moms are down at the school board and they're tearing the school board a, a new one, right? And they're, you know, pointing out, you know, all the flaws in each of their personalities and stuff and getting thrown out and holding signs. And, that, and I said, some of those are really uh, entertaining, aren't they? And the pastors laugh and they say, yeah, yeah. And then I would say, where are the men? Where are the men? And I'm no, I don't mean that as a criticism to the, you know, the male gender. I think, especially in hindsight, that that protective mechanism was activated first and most strongly in the moms. And that's why you saw almost universally these uh, school board sessions packed with, with ladies. Because they recognized the threat. Even if they couldn't enunciate it, they knew there was a threat. So there's a movement that we all know is there. We can all see it. And, and that movement is um, you know, people who are struggling to adapt to this new reality. And it is in very stark terms to them, terms like you know, protecting kids. Who wouldn't do anything to protect children? What wouldn't you do to protect your kids? Um, and so I think, and, and I was saying this from the very beginning, that uh, our public officials made a horrible mistake in the way that they conducted this pandemic. They made short-term expedient decisions to, to satisfy you know, what they thought were the requirements of controlling a, a germ, a, an uncontrollable virus, not properly considering what was going to happen after. You know, sure, you can, you can keep the folks locked down for a while, but they're going to come out, and then they're going to be looking to see if those decisions that you made made sense. And I, and I think we're, we're entering that phase now. We're beginning to enter the phase of accounting, where people are starting to say, was it worth it? And the folks who were responsible for making those decisions are at some point going to have to be accountable for the decisions that they made. And what will they say? You can only dissemble and obfuscate for so long. Except we're in Florida where things seem to have played out a bit differently than what you're describing. So explain to me what you're saying here. Something happened in Florida different than in other states, clearly, right? And I think uh, everybody wants to say um, that we have the best governor in the, the country, and I think we have the best governor in the country, um, but that is an inadequate explanation. Uh, the governor signs laws, he doesn't write the laws. There is a whole legislature that writes those laws, and if the legislature doesn't give the governor the laws to sign, he can't have these signing ceremonies where he gets to take the credit. So our legislature fueled what happened here in Florida. Now, Florida was a purple state going into the pandemic. It's clearly a solid red state now. Something happened. 
I was there at the beginning when Governor DeSantis sort of launched into the man that he is now, which is, you know, love him or hate him, he is recognized as maybe one of the most influential people in politics, right? Um, but when I filed my little math lawsuit against the county in um, April or May of 2020, I named the governor as an additional defendant. I sued the governor. I sued the governor because he wasn't doing anything about these mandatory mask um, edicts or whatever you want to call them, executive orders. And I sued him not because I felt that he was culpable, but because I wanted to get his attention. I felt like surely if he knew what was going on here in Alachua County, he would act. And at that time, um, without you know, revealing any confidences, I, I was hoping to get, and I did get, an attorney from the governor's office assigned to the case. And you know, at that time, the governor's office position was they really didn't want to get involved. And I wound up dismissing him out of the case because the only reason I put him in was to, to get his attention, and it wasn't going anywhere. Somewhere along the way, he started to become bolder. Now, remember, he barely beat Andrew Gillum in his election. So he didn't come in with a mandate. Um, but he started to pick up as, as, you know, we started to get wins in the courts and, you know, started to, to push back a little bit. The governor's office was also coming along. And I saw a change. And as I was filing the, you know, more suits, the governor's office was becoming more engaged with me. Ultimately, the governor's office would call me and ask if I could help by filing a lawsuit. So, for example, I sued um, several counties that were rebelling against the state's mask mandate, right, the holdout counties. And uh, the, the state really can't sue itself. So um, my lawsuits were in large part a result of contacts from the governor's office asking if I was willing to, to take up that cause. And we were successful in those, those lawsuits. Um, so there was an evolution there, right? And then the, the parents' rights thing, and you know, Governor DeSantis has really made a name for himself in the area of parents' rights, as I'm sure you know. Um, but, but it was an, an evolving process. At some point, Florida, what I would call stabilized. We had our schools open, we had our businesses open, we had the masks off. And there was a temptation, I think, to feel like <clears throat> we had won. And I'll never, an, another, um, you know, one of those never forget moments, I gave a, a talk at uh, the Ocala COVID Summit. And it was, I think, in October of last year. I think it's been a year. And um, very well attended event. And afterward, I was mingling with folks and talking to them. And uh, this nice young lady came up, and she, I remember she had this big flowery hat on, and she shook my hand and told me how much she um, you know, enjoyed my, my talk and whatnot. And I, I recognized she had a Canadian accent. So I said, um, you know, you're from Canada? And she said, oh, yes. And then she told me, and I, again, I'll never forget this, 
the story. And meanwhile, her whole family started gathering around more Canadians. And she said they had been smuggled out of Canada across the border in the middle of the night. They had left their homes. They had left their bank accounts, their cars, all their property. They basically got connected to an underground railroad through a planes, trains, and automobiles type of sequence in the middle of the night crossing the border, and they went straight to Florida. And what I recognized in October was that we were far from done. Right? Florida is a, a little outpost. But not only is there Canada, there are other states, blue states, where they have horrible problems with government overreach still. So to answer your question, I think that, do you remember the old Florida man meme? You don't hear that too much anymore, right? We're all a bunch of you know, dumb redneck idiots down here that wrestle alligators and you know, jump our pickup trucks over the swamp and that kind of thing. Um, but there was something to it. There's an independent streak in Florida. Um, that I think fueled what you see. Again, it's not just one man. It's a whole legislature. It's a, you know, all the constituents of those legislators who were pushing them and supporting them and, and everything else. Um, this, you know, I don't know if it's a libertarian streak. I, I think that's you know, maybe too facile to say that, but th there's a, a, a just a you know, doggedly independent streak in Florida that um, allowed us, I think, to, to create this, this outpost of freedom. Why do you think DeSantis shifted and his agencies shifted um, during that time? I believe that Governor DeSantis is one of the most honest politicians that we've seen in a long time. And so, I believe that he embraced things that he wanted to do. But again, he didn't start with a mandate. He was not a strong governor for Florida when he first started. I mean, Andrew Gillum, I mean, I don't want to say anything critical, but you know, he should have beat Andrew Gillum by a country mile, right? Um, and, and the governor also, remember, he was a Trump candidate. They love to to point that out. And I think, and he's a lawyer, and he's a very smart man. And I think he watched what President Trump went through. And so his administration is very, very protective, almost to the point of paranoia. And when I say that, I always like to point out it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. It's prudence. And so they're very prudently protective of the governor. And, um, and so at, at the beginning, I think that was a disadvantage for him. But what happened was it protected him politically from you know, making some, some you know, early obvious mistakes, like maybe if he had come out against the vaccines from the get-go, they would have destroyed him for it. Right? He didn't do that. But where are we now? Now... The state of Florida does not even officially recommend taking the vaccines, and they recommend against it for kids. I don't know if there's you know, another major state in the U.S. that takes that position, but he's getting away with it. 
think the governor has incredibly naturally developed political instincts. Um, and when he saw the opportunity to, to lead, he took it. Could another governor have done it? You know, could Greg Abbott have done it or, you know, one of these other uh, conservative governors? I don't know. I think that there was a unique combination of factors. Um, DeSantis didn't have a lot to lose because he wasn't on the political map when he started. Right? He wasn't invested. He, he, didn't, ha he didn't owe a lot of favors because um, he hadn't been around for a long time and because they were so protective. So that gave him a lot of freedom, I think, that other governors didn't have. Uh, and then I think he's a good person. He did the right thing. It was almost surreal to me when you said, you know, he's not recommending the vaccine and he's, in, or, and he's recommending against it for children, of course, through Surgeon General Adapo. Um, and then he's getting away with it, is where your words. What do you think about that? It's just doesn't that sound like a surreal thing to say? Right. This is one of those things that if I had said it, pre-pandemic, you would have written it off as a sort of a hyperbolic, maybe conspiracy theory-minded, uh, you know, emotional comment, right? But now you know exactly what I mean. And it is surreal. This is the, this is the world that we didn't think we were living in, that we found out that we are living in, right? Which is that that you know, somebody like you or me, an average citizen, could say something on social media that would draw the attention of the entire federal government to try to cancel us and um, relieve us of our livelihood and put us out of business, right? That's possible now. I didn't think that was possible two years ago. And this, you know, we, we complained about cancel culture um, pre-pandemic. But we had no idea what cancel culture was. When the entire corporate media lines up behind the government, when big tech lines up behind the federal government to, to carry out and enforce the federal government's policies, enforce them, right? I chose that word carefully. Uh, we have something different than the democracy that we thought we had. I don't know what we have right now, but it's not what we thought we had. How many lawyers are there in this country right now who are doing the kind of work you're doing? That's a great question. And the good news is there are more lawyers now than there ever were. And that number is steadily increasing. And we're starting to see larger and larger firms getting involved in in these battles. I'm, I'm not aware of any large firm taking on a mass case, but uh, I'm starting to be aware of medium-sized firms that will do it, or uh, that'll get involved in these hospital kidnapping cases, right? What do you mean by that, just quickly? Yeah, so a phase that we went through in you know my COVID litigation history was um, when hospitalizations were sort of at their peak. And what we would see over and over again is patients who were in the hospital 
with a COVID diagnosis. Many of them entered the hospital for something completely different, but were given a test in the ER or something and were admitted as a COVID patient. They didn't want remdesivir. They didn't want the ventilator, but they were being put on the ventilator and they were being given remdesivir against their wishes. I can't tell you how many calls we got, hundreds, thousands, and they were dying. So uh, the calls that we were getting were panicked relatives who you know, wanted us to use legal process to, to force the hospitals to either treat them with alternative treatments that, that, they, that the patient wanted or let them go. And the hospitals wouldn't do either one. In one case that I had, I took up on an emergency appeal uh, it's inexplicable. There were three corporate law firms that were hired by the hospital to defend the hospital's position in that appeal and keep that patient in the hospital. And all the relatives wanted to do was get him out. The hospital said he was not sufficiently stable to move. He said he's willing to, you know, they're willing to sign whatever releases, you know, that the hospital wants. They don't want him on that ventilator anymore. They want him in a different facility. We had a different facility who was willing to take him. We had a doctor who was willing to take over his care. And the hospital probably spent hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting us to, to keep him in the hospital. That's what I call a hospital kidnapping case. It doesn't make any sense. If you're, if you're the patient and your wishes are that you don't want them to treat you anymore, why can't you ha make that decision in a free country? It's supposed to be a business. You're just a customer, right? But that wasn't what was happening. Um, so these, so more and more, more and more law firms are are, are getting involved. Uh, I maintain a database of what we call our allied attorneys. So when we become aware of uh, an attorney or a law firm that has litigated, you know, one of these what I call a freedom case, then we contact them, and if they agree, we add them to the list. And so we've got you know, basically a referral network um, in almost every state in the country now. So when we get someone calling us from Michigan, and I'm not licensed to practice in Michigan, I can't help them effectively. We've got a list of attorneys in Michigan who we know for a fact will take these cases. I should be able to refer them to any law firm, right? Any competent lawyer should be able to, to help these folks, but many lawyers won't. Uh, and that was a problem at the beginning, but like I said, um, it's it's so encouraging that you know more and more lawyers are joining the fight. Do you, do you feel free to say how many are how many freedom lawyers there are now? Well, it's so many that uh, I lost count or I stopped tracking it. I mean, hundreds and hundreds. Uh, most of them are smaller practitioners like I am, and I think there's a very simple explanation for that. I think again, these are lawyers who don't have historical connections with government. Right, I never litigated against the government or for the government. I don't care if they don't send me any business. I never got any business from them. Mm. Um, other larger firms have to make that calculation. So the, this, the small lawyers that saved us. You're saying you're expecting there to be accountability. Um, that's interesting. There's a lot of people out there who are what you'd call black-pilled. They just don't expect there to ever be any accountability. What do you have to say to them? First of all, I understand how they feel. It's incredibly frustrating what's happened. It's so obvious to many people what happened was wrong. 
And again, in the old world that we used to live in, people who did things that were wrong were arrested, were tried. You know, maybe they could get off on a technicality, an OJ defense or something, but at least they had to, you know, go through the process. And what we've seen in the last two years is that, um, you know, every major institution in this country has closed ranks to protect those wrongdoers. And it seems overwhelming. How could you possibly overcome the universities, the federal government, the, you know, state, local, county, dog catcher, right? All working together to prevent anybody from having to be accountable. How can you overcome that? And so that is a legitimate concern, but that's not how justice works. That's not how uh, history works, right? It has only been two years. Now, two years seems like a long time when you're in the middle of it, right? When you're in the war, two years on the front lines, that is a long time. But it's not a long time in a historical sense. Um, there are any number of, of great old slogans about it, but you know, the wheels of justice move slowly, but they eventually will get there. And I think that, uh, so I'll give you a tangible example. When I first started litigating in you know, this area with these uh, COVID cases, your rank and file judge didn't want to hear anything about it. Right, they were totally closed-minded. So when I filed my first mask lawsuit, I expected to lose at the trial court because I'm asking a person, an individual, just like you and me, their job is to be a judge. They have to run for election. What judge in the summer of 2020 wanted to be the anti-mask judge? Right, that's throwing your career away. That's what they were hearing from their peers. But now, when I go into court before a judge, I have an, at least an open mind. That's a sea change from where we were. It's completely different. I got a, um, an oral ruling from a federal judge in Pensacola Division. I won't say his name to, to embarrass him. But he called out this hospital that we were suing for their ir totally irrational um, vaccine mandate. Now, he didn't give me the relief that I wanted, but he went on and on about how disgusted he was about it and how um, you know, unpleasant and irrational the policy was. I couldn't have got that the first year of the pandemic. So I feel like we're on a trajectory, right? I almost got there with that judge and I got enough. Well, what about next year? I study the news related to COVID every morning because I write a blog about it. So I'm pretty well informed about current events. And what we're seeing is that while the government could game the, um, the scientific literature for a while at the beginning, they've lost control of that now. And their study, you know this, study after study after study now are critical, for example, of the vaccines. Study after study after study are critical of the, the masking, right? There is a great weight, you know, just one little study at a time on a, some narrow issue. But when you add them all up, 
there's a body of scholarship forming that's outside the control of the government. They don't have enough you know, officials to control all of that. So when I go into court next year, I'm going to have even more ammunition. When I started, I had nothing to work with. Right? It was brand new. It was all just uh, you know, people's hypotheses and what Dr. Fauci said. Now I can point to this study and this study and this study and this study until I you know, get tired. Um, so we, we're going to get there. There will be accountability. I can't tell you how long it's going to take. Um, I, I can tell you that these things you know, tend to drag out. We, we're up against a very well-organized, um, well-resourced opponent. They are not going to give in easily. They're going to slow it down however they can, but it is coming. It is a force that is so large and heavy and unstoppable, they cannot hold it back forever. We will get accountability. Well, Jeff Childers, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for joining Jeff Childers and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. 